you. Thank you so much, uh, Dolphy, and thank you to uh, the CBRL and uh, for inviting me and having the great honor of um, me giving the first of these presentations in this uh, very interesting series to mark um, the centenary and the history of the British mandate period in Palestine. Um, and I think it's uh, somewhat apt uh, that, that I'm the first as I'm going to be looking at the uh, decades and the century actually before the British mandate period began to investigate how the roots of British colonization and support for settler colonization in Palestine actually stretches way back to um, before 1922, before 1917, deep into the 19th century. Um, which is something I'm very passionate about, um, an argument that I'm very passionate about, and something that we cannot ever lose sight of, I will argue, in the rest of this talk. Um, so, yeah, again, thank you to everyone who is here. Um, good afternoon, good evening, um, good morning, wherever you happen to be in the world. Um, thank you for coming along. And I'm very happy to be presenting, as Tofik mentioned, my new book. I'm happy to be doing it in front of this audience and at least on some virtual sense to be doing it in Jerusalem, Al-Quds. Uh, it means a lot. And I very much hope that in the future I can come to Jerusalem, come to Palestine and um, discuss my book and anything else in person in Palestine. Um, but this is a great start uh, to be here with you today. Um, so I want to also preface my talk by saying that there are a few um, quotations I will give in the talk uh, from Orientalist Victorian texts. Um, which I've chosen because they demonstrate the racist and orientalist mindset of British travellers, and therefore that's the kind of language that they use, um, that some of you may rightly consider to be offensive and racist. Um, I, of course, no, in no way condone that language, but I just want to give a warning that I some, some things I say may be offensive. Um, Okay, so I'm uh, to, to talk about the genesis of my book, which uh, the cover of which is displayed on the right hand side. Um, I would also like to thank the designers at IB Taurus who did a great job. And in case you're wondering, that is a travel poster from a French travel company. I believe it was produced around the turn of the 20th century. Um, so within the period that I'm looking at. Um, so yes, the genesis of my book um, came just before I started my PhD at the University of Exeter, when I was attending a lecture given by the person who would become my PhD supervisor, Professor Ilan Pape, who I'm sure needs no introduction to any of you. Uh, discussing the history of Palestine, Ilan mentioned the vast number of Western travelers who made their way to the Holy Land in the 19th century and the vast body of texts in which they recorded their impressions and experiences. To give a sense of the scale of this genre of literature, bibliographic research has indicated that there are at least about 6,000 works on Palestine and Egypt published in Europe from about 1800 to around 1914, um, possibly many more. Um, and in this lecture that Ilan gave, he mentioned that this was a very underutilized resource um, on which very little research had been carried out. 
even though it was such a vast and important body of literature. The reasons for this lack of research and, and that lack of investigation um, might appear to be self-evident. The work of Western travelers as a whole is generic in the extreme, rife with Orientalist prejudice and cliche, and devoid of genuine insights into Palestinian society, as travelers generally had very little contact with indigenous Palestinians, could not speak Arabic, and usually passed rapidly from place to place, traversing whatever parts of the Palestine they were visiting in a few weeks at most, without taking the time needed to obtain beyond a surface impression. Most travelers were also essentially uninterested in the Palestine and Palestinians of their present day, except in so far as they considered them illustrations to the biblical text. What they really sought on their journeys was the ancient Holy Land. And in their books, they might spend several pages eulogizing on a few scattered stones, which seemed to them to be the remains of this or that town mentioned in the Bible, while devoting only a few lines to the existing village, maybe meters away from those ruins, and what one British traveler called the crowd of brown-skinned simpletons who lived there. So to learn anything much about Palestinian society, we have to turn to a fundamentally different body of sources, records largely written in Arabic or Ottoman Turkish, from the late 19th century onwards, journals and newspapers produced by the emerging Arab intelligentsia in Palestine. Yet Western sources do have an importance of their own. It is their very generic nature, their prejudices, what they choose to focus on and what to exclude that makes them significant as evidence for what Westerners, particularly the elites who could afford to travel to the Eastern Mediterranean and afford to purchase and could read the travelogue accounts, were thinking about Palestine. These are the attitudes that existed in Britain in the decades running up to Britain's invasion and occupation of Palestine during the First World War, the fateful Balfour Declaration of 1917, and the British Mandate period that directly preceded and paved the way for the 1948 Nakba. My research led me to believe, as I argue throughout Palestine in the Victorian age, that it was the mid to late 19th century that the occupation and settler colonization of Palestine was first planned, not initially by Zionist Jewish individuals or organizations, but rather predominantly by British Victorians, many of them evangelical Protestants with what we would today recognize as a Christian Zionist view of Palestine. And here on this slide, we have some illustrations that I believe, um, these are typical illustrations um, from a series, Picturesque Palestine, that was published in the 1880s, that uh, show the, um, the kind of concerns and the lens that travelers came to uh, when they arrived in Palestine. So we see ruins, um, I believe that Sebastia on the right-hand side um, and the Galilee in the middle, um, and Jerusalem as well on the left, but portrayed um, with these kind of crumbling stones and um, population of beggars in this kind of Orientalist vision of what uh, Palestinian cities were rather than the reality. 
So the context of my book is a phenomenon which has been described as the peaceful crusade, a very euphemistic term, which under the weight of its contradictions eventually resolved as an open violent crusade, the conquest of Palestine by the British Empire in 1917 to 18. The heyday of the peaceful crusade equates with the period roughly covered in my book, from the Egyptian occupation of Palestine in the 1830s, which ended in 1840 when the British Navy helped the Ottomans to recapture the Eastern Mediterranean, to the 1880s, when relations between the Ottomans and the Western European powers began to become more hostile. There were two closely connected sides to the peaceful crusade. The first might be characterized as one of high international relations. The Ottoman Empire was, as I'm sure you're all familiar, thought by the other European empires to be the sick man of Europe. Britain, France and Russia all expected the imminent collapse of the Ottoman Empire and sought to hasten this demise through sometimes through consular and missionary activity, other times through more overtly violent methods like direct war or proxy war, and to strengthen their own positions to absorb Ottoman territories into their own. For, for both symbolic reasons, Palestine as the wellspring of the Christian faith, and geostrategic reasons, even before the opening of the Suez Canal in 1869, Palestine was of key importance to the route from Europe to India, all the imperial powers competed over the Holy Land. This can be seen today in the architectural fabric of Jerusalem, with the Anglican Church, Christ Church, uh, near Yaffa Gate uh, in Jerusalem, the first Protestant church in the Middle East, which was essentially a missionary base. Um, then you have the Russian compound um, shortly outside the old city, um, which was funded by the Russian Empire. You also have a plethora of French financed Catholic institutions, both inside and outside the old city, etc., um, all built in the 19th century by these competing uh, imperial European powers. The second aspect of the peaceful crusade and I want to emphasize that this was very closely connected to this international relations dimension I just mentioned, was socio-cultural. Especially in Britain and amongst the evangelical Protestants in particular, there was an obsession, a cultural obsession with all things Palestine. The evangelical revival in England in the early 19th century created an intensive focus on the physicality of the Holy Land, represented in church stained glass windows, in popular prints, uh, in artworks, etc. Evangelical beliefs also centered on the Jewish people and the restoration, so-called, to Palestine of the Jews, which many in Britain believed, considering their country's imperial hegemony, that it was the British Empire's destiny to achieve. This cultural obsession also included the proto-Zionist novel da Daniel Deronda by George Eliot, uh, which is discussed in uh, Said's Question of Palestine, you may remember. Um, also the efforts of the prominent politician, Lord Shaftesbury, a very well-known uh, proto-Zionist figure in the 19th century, and the Palestine Exploration Fund which was established with Queen Victoria's backing in 1865. 
As I've already mentioned, there was also the mass travel to Palestine from Britain and elsewhere on the continent as well and in America, but especially from Britain, uh, with the Derbyshire Baptist preacher Thomas Cook beginning his Cook's Tours to Palestine and Egypt in 1869, which was the birth of modern tourism to the region. And uh, you see there on the right hand side, a travel poster produced by uh, the Thomas Cook Travel Company, um, as well as some images on the left hand side, uh, we have uh, an image of Yaffa Gate or Babel Khalil um, that was turned into a postcard uh, by the Detroit Publishing Company uh, and was, you know, popularly sold in Palestine, and distributed in Europe. Uh, and also an image there we have of some uh, Western travelers with their local Palestinian guides having a picnic on the Jordan River. Um, so now that I've established the context of my research and the context, uh, the political and social of the period that my book concerns, I'll briefly explore the chapters of my book to give an indication of the themes that I cover and the arguments that I make. My book moves roughly chronologically through the Victorian period of fascination with Palestine, uh, but also geographically moves around Palestine, showing how the Western gaze fell on the entirety of the land, but also on specific locations, uh, namely Jerusalem, Nablus and Haifa. I begin with the American traveler Edward Robinson, who visited Palestine twice in 1838 and 1852. I'll just draw attention to the fact that uh, among the portraits in the middle there, he is on the bottom left. Uh, I think that Robinson did more than any other individual to kickstart this phenomenon of the peaceful crusade, because his books, especially the 1841 three-volume bestseller, Biblical Researches in Palestine, he tried to bring a semi-scientific rationality to Palestine, which was in tune with the spirit of Western knowledge systems at the time. Of course, you know, thousands of travelers, pilgrims and so-called explorers and uh, various characters had been to Palestine over, you know, the ages um, for, you know, over two millennia. Um, but Robinson's approach was fundamentally different and fundamentally new. Traveling painstakingly from place to place around Palestine, and he really did cover the length and breadth of the land. Unlike most travelers I've mentioned, he was actually fairly adventurous and he went to a very large number of villages, different locations in Palestine. Um, so Robinson sought to identify contemporary Palestinian villages with biblical locations using evidence from the sacred text, but also cold, hard logic. He was unafraid to iconoclastically overturn established pilgrimage sites if they did not fit into his criteria. The effect was to really put Palestine on the map, not some distant, almost mythological place, but a physical land that could be traversed, intimately known, and ultimately, although I don't believe that this was Robinson's conscious purpose, could be possessed in a colonial sense. Robinson's biographer has accurately stated that Palestine in the Western imagination had previously been afloat like an island in the sea, almost like a cloud in the sky of fable. 
but Robinson's explorations left it a part of Asia. While Robinson was a prototype of Western traveler, his work differs from his successors in significant ways. Robinson had a certain respect for Palestinians and could form genuine, if somewhat short-lived, relationships with them because of his traveling companion, Eli Smith, who was a missionary who lived for over a decade in Beirut and spoke excellent Arabic. Robinson and Smith's methodology for traversing Palestine involved finding a local guide from a village who could then accompany them to the next village, providing their indigenous knowledge of the land along the way. Robinson often recorded snippets of daily Palestinian life and interesting conversations he had with his interlocutors. He also noted in some detail the agricultural productions of different parts of Palestine, praising the land's fertility and the indigenous farming of the Fedahin. This was in total distinction to many other travelers' accounts, which portrayed Palestine as a barren land with its potential wasted by its inhabitants. Israeli scholars have frequently drawn upon that body of works uncritically as source texts, but Robinson's work provides a refreshing antidote to these biased representations. Yet while Robinson was reasonably fair-minded for a Western Orientalist of the day, it's a very low bar, of course, uh, those whose journeys he set in motion conveyed a much more negative impression of Palestine and ideologically and practically laid the ground for Zionist settler colonization. Two of these individuals were British military officers who went to Palestine in the 1870s as surveyors for the Palestine Exploration Fund. In an 1878 pamphlet entitled The Land of Promise, Charles Warren, who you can see in the top left of those portraits, uh, quite uncannily predicted the policy of the British mandate 40 years before the British occupation of Palestine began, when he wrote that Britain's role in Palestine would be to, and I quote, gradually introduce the Jew, pure and simple, who is to eventually occupy and govern this country. Let the Jew find his way into its army, its law, its diplomatic service, let him superintend the farming operations and work himself on the farms. That's 40 years before the Balfour Declaration that that was written. Warren's colleague in the Palestine Exploration Fund, Claude Rainier Conda, who you can see on the bottom left of the portraits, became an enthusiastic supporter of early Zionism, giving speeches to Zionist organizations before his death in 1910. Considering settler colonialism in Palestine a particular asset to Britain, he predicted that Palestine may become a very important source of corn supply for England if it was under Jewish settler colonization. Uh, this uh, page of portraits there um, on the, uh, in the middle, by the way, is uh, taken from Nahum Sokolov's uh, History of Zionism. That's a very early history of Zionism written in 1919. Um, so he's giving all of these figures, all of whom, uh, apart from Robinson, are from the Palestine Exploration Fund. He's paying tribute to them by including their portrait in his book there. Um, and on the left, you see uh, Robinson's arch, which is um, on the uh, eastern, one of the eastern walls of the Haram al-Sharif in Jerusalem, the Al-Aqsa compound, uh, which Robinson believed was uh, evidence of a walkway that went into the area um, when it was occupied by the historic Jewish temples in antiquity. 
Um, so now to move on to Jerusalem. Two chapters of my book focus on Jerusalem. The first of these considers Western travelers' attitudes towards the main holy sites of the three Abrahamic faiths, Al-Haram al-Sharif and Al-Aqsa, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and the Western Wall. Whereas Palestinian Christians and non-Protestant pilgrims had treated the Holy Sepulchre with reverence as Christianity's most sacred site, most evangelicals viewed the building with contempt. Prominent Victorian novelist William Thackeray illustratively wrote that, and I quote, it's blaring candles, reeking incense, and savage pictures of the scripture story made the Church of the Holy Sepulchre for some time seem to an Englishman the least sacred spot about Jerusalem. Many travellers, including Edward Robinson, tried to use scriptural evidence to argue that the site of Christ's crucifixion and burial place could not have been within the old city at all, and suggested various alternative locations, such as the Garden Tomb, which uh, is just a few hundred metres from the Kenyan Institute in Jerusalem, I believe. Um, and just to, to note here that um, in the middle, we have the picture by William Holman Hunt, the pre-Raphaelite artist, showing Easter being celebrated in the Church of the Holy Sepulchre as some kind of um, chaotic, um, totally anarchic scene devoid of any spiritual meaning and just um, a kind of summary of every form of Orientalist chaos you can imagine. Um, um, uh, so, yes, back to um, alternative sites for the crucifixion. One Scottish architect, James Ferguson, in the 19th century, even claimed that the Dome of the Rock marked the true crucifixion site. And the dome itself was the original Byzantine church built to commemorate Christ's sacrifice. While this idea might seem outlandish, it actually gained significant traction during the 19th century illustrating how evangelical attention was being directed towards the Haram al-Sharif rather than traditional Christian sites. My second chapter on Jerusalem centers on James Finn, the British consul in Jerusalem for 17 years from 1846 to 63, his wife Elizabeth Ann Finn, and their project Kerem Afraham, a farm for Jewish labourers which they established outside the old city in the 1850s. And to those of you in Jerusalem, it might be familiar as a neighbourhood in uh, West Jerusalem now. The Finns were evangelicals, deeply obsessed by the Jews, and they hoped that the farm which they established, ostensibly to provide relief during the famine-struck years of the Crimean War, would mark the first return to the land of the Jews of Jerusalem and the beginning of the redemption of the supposedly barren land of Palestine. It was in this respect an early model for a settler colonial farm. While the project folded when the Finns left Palestine, the later on, the now widowed Elizabeth Finn reactivated it from her home in London in the 1880s, a time of increased Jewish immigration to both Palestine and Britain as a result of anti-Semitic pogroms in the Russian Empire. With the support of Lord Shaftesbury and other members of the aristocracy and clergy, Elizabeth Finn established an organization called the Syrian Colonization Fund, which raised money to support the Kerem Avraham farm and other sites in the Eastern Mediterranean. 
It's noteworthy that Elizabeth Finn used an anti-Semitic argument that it was undesirable that Jewish refugees should come to, Pal to Britain, but rather should be sent to Palestine. In a newspaper article, she described the Syrian Colonization Fund as a society which helps refugees to leave England in search of new homes. My history of the Syrian Colonization Fund until its demise after the First World War is the first to have appeared in print in English. Um, on the right hand side, you can see an image of some of those Jewish farmers on uh, Kerem Afraham in the 1850s. And um, incidentally, a link uh, between the picture by Holman Hunt in the middle and the Kerem Afraham farm is that Hunt was one of the uh, donors to the Syrian colonization fund. So, um, you know, as well as being an artist who visited Palestine several times in the 19th century, Hunt was um, a, a pro-Zionist and uh, yeah, he donated to the Syrian colonization fund. Um, so my book has two chapters also that focus more on Nablus and also center on indigenous responses to the peaceful crusade, ranging from resistance to accommodation. All my information is taken from Western sources, yet I try to interrogate these for what we can learn about Palestinians and their reaction to the increasing Western interest and influence in their homeland. So the first of the Nablus chapters concerns an uprising that took place in Nablus in 1856, which I found mentioned in several travelers accounts and was also heavily reported in British press at the time. The uprising came against the background of the Ottoman Tanzimat reforms, which were viewed with suspicion by the populace for their authorization of increased Western influence across the Ottoman Empire, particularly over Christian Ottoman subjects. The immediate cause of the Nablus uprising was the shooting dead of a local Nablusi man by a British missionary who was traveling through the city. The result was a day of rioting, which was unfortunately largely directed against the small indigenous Christian population in Nablus. Whilst expressed in this negative reaction, I argue that the uprising demonstrated an incipient anxiety towards the Western presence in Palestine, felt by people in Nablus and possibly elsewhere. The second Nablus chapter looks at a very different figure, uh, a Samaritan by the name of Yaqub Ashelabi, who you can see pictured on the right-hand side uh, with Charles Warren of the Palestine Exploration Fund. Yaqub had his first contact with Western travelers in the 1840s and afterwards made a long career out of collaboration with foreign visitors to the city. He made himself particularly useful to travelers who wished to buy antique Samaritan artifacts, especially manuscripts of their sacred texts, which he sold without obtaining permission from his community, causing significant tensions among the Samaritans. You can actually see him in the process of handing one of these texts over to Warren there on the right hand side. Um, with the help of his clerical and political backers, he also visited Britain four times from the 1850s to the 1880s and had a short autobiography published, making him probably the first indigenous Palestinian in modern times to have had a book published in the English language. Again, my exploration of Yaqub's fascinating life in Palestine in the Victorian age is the first in-depth exploration of the subject. 
So my last uh, chapter, content chapter in the book, uh, considers a key figure in Britain's relationship with the Zionist movement, Laurence Oliphant. Uh, in the academic literature, Oliphant has often been discussed as an eccentric and his support for Zionism framed as part of his religious mysticism. Alternatively, I fit his interventions in Palestine into the 19th century buildup to Palestine's colonization. Um, and I don't see it as, you know, a, an eccentric uh, hobby that Oliphant had, but rather a product of this long period of creeping colonialism in Palestine. Significantly, Oliphant served as superintendent of Indian affairs in Quebec in the 1850s during which he attempted to implement policies of annihilation and assimilation. And this is a fact that's actually been overlooked uh, in all the other literature about Oliphant's activities in Palestine. In 1879, so three decades after his time in Canada, he developed the most complete plan for settler colonialism in Palestine that then existed. After he traveled around the region, he recognized that Palestine west of the Jordan was already, and I quote, in the highest state of cultivation by the indigenous Fellahin. There was no room there for uh, a colony of the kind that he planned. So he turned to what was called in the 19th century, Eastern Palestine, which is present day Jordan, where he identified an area of a million and a half acres as a potential site for a huge Jewish colony advocating the ethnic cleansing of the region's largely Bedouin population. He wrote of his belief that, I quote, there would be no difficulty in clearing them out. While his colonial plan failed to win the sympathy of the Ottoman authorities, he settled near Haifa, devoting the rest of his life until 1888 to supporting the nascent Zionist movement. On the left there, you have a map of Palestine and where he proposed that there should be this colony uh, in eastern Palestine connected by rail. Um, this was before railways existed in Palestine, but uh, which he predicted. Um, and on the bottom right, you can see uh, he actually, Oliphant lived in two places in Palestine. Um, some of you, I'm sure, are familiar with the German colony in Haifa. There is a house there that Oliphant lived in um, for about 18 months. And after that, he actually moved to a village inhabited by the Druze population, uh, Dalia or Dalia del Carmel, was still there, of course. And um, this, you can see there in the bottom right, the house that he built, that he funded and lived in, uh, in Dalia, um, which is actually a museum now um, of the IDF or Israeli occupation force and their Druze um, units. So it's actually like a, some kind of um, memorial to, to Druze soldiers who served with the, the Israeli army. Um, okay, um, I just want to finish my presentation <coughs> with this image, which is a, a screenshot of uh, the website of the Friends of Zion Museum which is an institution in West Jerusalem founded by American Christian Zionists in 2015, which is dedicated to presenting a, a very positive view of Israel. Uh, you can see 
uh, images of Edward Robinson on the left, um, here standing next to, just out of shot, um, Robinson's arch, which I mentioned earlier, um, and dressed in rather ahistorical clothing um, for the 1830s. And uh, Lawrence Oliphant and his wife Alice um, in the middle, and even Queen Victoria on the upper right, giving some kind of very odd, wild gesture. Um, so this museum and this exhibition uh, of these 19th century travellers and um, Queen Victoria is just one of many ways in which the Victorian legacy has received recognition in Israel for laying the foundations of the Zionist project and of the state. But I think that the most important legacy of this period is that of the concrete plans for settler colonization, up to and including the elimination of the Palestinian native presence, which is what Oliphant theorized. Like so many other injustices the world faces, the situation in Palestine today is to a significant degree a hangover from the era of high colonialism and imperialism in the 19th century in the decades even before the British directly occupied Palestine and paved the way for the Nakba. Thank you very much.